to From the Archives to the Air on KGNU. I'm Benita Lee. This episode is a little different from previous ones. We have a recent interview with University of Colorado Assistant Professor Josh Shepard. He's the author of a new book called Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting, which traces the evolution of public media, radio in particular, in the United States. Dr. Shepard is also the director of the Sound Submissions Project at the Library of Congress Radio Preservation Task Force. Its mission is developing an online inventory of existing American radio archival collections. It all dovetails with the aim of this program. Dr. Shepard visited KGNU to talk about his book and his work with the Radio Preservation Task Force. He spoke with KGNU volunteer John Kellen. As we proceed, we'll drop in a few brief but relevant clips from our own audio archive. And now, John's conversation with Josh Shepard. Joining me is Josh Shepard, the author of Shadow of the New Deal, about uh, the development of non-commercial radio. Is that the right term, non-commercial radio, or is it public radio, non-commercial media? At that point, it's both, I think. Yeah, non-commercial and or proto-public media. He is also an assistant professor of media studies at uh, CU and director of the Sound Submissions Project at the Library of Congress Radio Preservation Task Force. Uh, so uh, welcome and thanks for uh, coming by to talk today. Thank you for having me. So I want to talk uh, first about your book. You go in somewhat into the origins of radio. Date, the origins date back to the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And it seems to me like a lot of new industries, it comes uh, first from the development of new technology, in this case, uh, harnessing radio waves. Uh, the first broadcast radio stations was around 1920, I think. KDKA. In Pittsburgh, I think. Yep. So that must have been kind of an and anything goes, period. And an early question would have been, who owns the airwaves? Is that mm. a fair yes. statement? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, radio uh, began as a wireless telegraph, and it was really used for commerce and um, bureaucratic communication uh, in its early days and ship-to-ship -ship communication. And so it has a totally different origin than, for example, film. Film was the illusion of a moving image, which they just called successive photography at the time. And so uh, radio is immediately uh, upon its inception an extension of commerce. And so a lot of early radio communication uh, is the simple relay of what we would take to be as banal information, <laughs> right? Here's where the ship is going to land. So the backdrop of you know early radio uh, is already on a trajectory uh, towards modes of public and social engagement in ways that other kinds of media technologies aren't at that moment, although they, of course, would also play some role uh, similar to radio as well. You, you write in your book that early on, once, once broadcasting radio stations began to resemble how we know them today, there was a belief that it could be used to improve equal access to education. Um, universities, generally speaking, looked at radio as a classroom extension, I believe you've written, and uh, the term distance learning was used. 
And you describe how the University of Wisconsin and Ohio State uh, really took leads in this. Yeah, it, Wisconsin's a fascinating story in particular uh, because during World War I, they were one of the only stations in the country that weren't shut down uh, in experimental frequencies uh, by the government. And they were actually transmitting back and forth between what they called the Great Lakes Naval Base and the station as a mode of point-to-point -point communication. And they were really interested in just that model of communication, the capacity to communicate. And this was all out of engineering departments. And physicists were experimenting with radio waves just to understand how it worked. And the government saw some utility in that. And what happens is sometime between 1917 and roughly 1921, particularly at Wisconsin, they start to realize that, oh, there's a lot of tornadoes about 30 miles north of Madison, Wisconsin, in an area called Baraboo. <laughs> yeah, I lived in Wisconsin for a while. And um, what if we could give weather reports live? What if we could just broadcast? Our signal seems to go just that far. And people had these early proto-versions of uh, what we call console later, radio console, and they called them a crystal set. Uh, so it was essentially this literally a crystal that you could touch a wire to. And people could tune in if they were worried about the weather, and we could announce to them this public service. So the public service model for radio out of universities begins with these military experiments, this like physics experimental culture, uh, and then the realization that the community could also benefit. And uh, roughly around the same time, in the 19 aughts and 19 teens, you get the first experiments uh, with uh, distance learning and uh, classroom extension services and all these kinds of things. And especially in rural areas of which, you know, Colorado would be a great exemplar too uh, at that time because of the mining towns. Um, in Wisconsin, it would have been farms, of course. So they were saying, well, how can we give farmers equal access to the resources? And so they um, began to develop these models for uh, classroom instruction through the microphone. So, uh, you know, it kind of elides some of the entertainment values that you see immediately with film. Like if the first film is something like 1888 with Le Prince in, in England, by 1892, they're already trying to entertain, you know, the audiences and they're already on, en route to Nickelodeons and stuff. Uh, with radio, they're just trying to expand models of communication that were already intact and then tie them to state bureaucracies that were trying to figure out ways to expand compulsory education. So yeah, the um, distance learning initiatives begin pretty quickly. As soon as they're able to uh, broadcast in a way that can reach 30, 40 miles out of the campus, uh, and then they figure out how to shortwave relay that uh, not too long afterwards, uh, they are trying to just give classrooms to households for the farmers that can't commute 30 miles on the horse right after a long day in the fields. Uh, and it's just this immediate sense that, um, you know, uh, mathematics education, you know, balancing the books, uh, what are the uh, pork belly prices at the market? Like, how can they create that service out of the land-grant university model? So it's as if um, radio being a sound medium had an advantage over film. So you said film pretty quickly went moved toward entertainment. The advantage that sound has is that it uh, you can express ideas a lot more clearly than you can with images. 
Ooh, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, it, what, what sound also affords, uh, which became you know primary to commercial radio practices uh, not too long afterwards, is that you can do multiple things at once. You're not as overwhelmed uh, by the necessity to tune into the medium. You can uh, do three or four things, including listening at the same time. So yeah, sound had uh, this primacy and it also had this institutional inscription that came from the commerce background uh, for radio that it was used by western union and you know ships before it was uh, you know used for entertainment and uh, um, vaudeville performances and variety shows and all those things we associate with early radio on nbc and cbs so in in that early time then did was there ever a point where we saw for lack of a better word a struggle between advocates of using radio for some higher purpose, for some public service, like you've just described, uh, and commercial interests, uh, privatization, who saw the potential for for profit. Yeah. By the mid-1920s, it becomes pretty clear to everyone that radio is going to be something new in that it transgresses not only distances with like immediacy, like I said before, but um, walls. You could have it in someone's house. You could reach someone in the private domain and the public private becomes blurred uh, because of that. So originally, you know, with the commercial broadcasters, they um, uh, create NBC out of RCA because uh, they want someone to buy the consoles. So GE and Westinghouse are part of RCA, and they're manufacturing these consoles, and they're very beautiful, like the old cathedral radios. They're furniture, essentially. And they realize pretty quickly uh, two things. One is that uh, all the talent in the country is nearby. <laughs> so NBC has Red and Blue are the two networks. One is in Jersey and one is in New York. Red is in New York. And all the vaudeville and Tin Pan Alley performers are there and are used to conversational fast performance and so they're sort of already um, uh, able to be put in front of a microphone and do something that people might want to listen to and they begin to perfect the aesthetics of radio that we now associate with the banter and intimacy of radio Uh, and the other thing is that um, advertisers see a similarity in radio to popular magazines so if you read you know an article in Reader's Digest, you know, or Popular Mechanics, you see that there's an advertisement on the side or up in the corner that surrounds the script. And they say, well, you know, we could find a way to do that orally. We could uh, have, you know, some content and then an advertisement and then more content. And they begin to develop the aesthetics of like segues between, you know, advertisements and performance. And so uh, these things are very palatable to a general public uh, well, meanwhile, <laughs> educators are just very invested in these almost like bureaucratic goals, which is, okay, we have to reach, um, you know, people 40 miles away in this community who don't have the right facilities for education, and technology might help us to do that, and what we need to do is create a better history lesson. And they just were not invested at all in the aesthetics in the 1920s. They saw a principle at hand or a practice at hand, but they didn't necessarily think about what would make people want to listen. So you have this dynamic in the 1920s, really by the mid-1920s, where you have two large experiments. 
one that's going very well. <laughs> RCA has not only the talent nearby, but they have AT&T. They own the wires, so they can expand like the railroads literally just by building wires and towers you know, across the country. And then you have uh, the educators, and the educators are just fundamentally interested in finding support from their own universities and communities uh, for lessons. And a lot of people didn't like that radio was telling them things about history or culture in their own houses. And they resisted a little bit. People weren't totally happy with the lessons. It was like eating spinach when it was time to eat steak for a lot of people. And so um, by the late 1920s, they begin to regulate at the national level. Uh, and uh, this competitions emerged because of what they at the time would have called frequency scarcity. There were only so many available channels. You know, there might be three or four in a town and the educators might want one but there might be 10 or 11 commercial interests uh, that also wanted that. And that creates this dynamic that was probably unnecessary because no one was against education on the commercial side. But the, they did want all the channels for the advertising. These are the people's damn public airways. We own this. Like we own the post office. We own the national parks. All of those, that's shared in common. What's wrong with public? What they're doing is taking public, making it a bad word. Public is a wonderful word. The fact that we are able to own things together, that we're able to go to the board meeting and, and make our views known because we, we assert our right. That's democracy, folks, you know. Sitting by the old corral with just my memories. That was folk singer and labor organizer Utah Phillips talking about the value of public radio when he stopped by KGNU back in 1992. All right, I'm speaking with Josh Shepard, the author of Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. The focus of the book is is what you're what you call the transitional period in non-commercial radio from about 1934 to 1951. You, you described the, the developing non-commercial and commercial interests that uh, were part of radio at that time. I was really struck by an image that you, you, you had early in the book, that of a, of a man named Carl Menzer of the University of Iowa radio station. And you write that he, w- he used to play the violin on the air for hours at a time just to have some on-air content. You call him, he was the, the, the university's station's uh, engineer, announcer, and station manager. Kind of a one-man band is the phrase he used. Uh, but I was really struck by that image of this guy. Just I have to have something to put on the air, and he pulled out his violin. Yeah, so I love Carl Menzer. I opened the book with him because he becomes a crucial figure who learns how to keep the nonprofit vision for media while experimenting with new technologies for about 20 years. And there's this moment, uh, he's at University of Iowa, and he has no support whatsoever, uh, and in fact, maybe an antagonistic boss <laughs> at the radio station, the early, if you could even call it that, you know, to keep the licenses Um, they had to have a certain amount of hours per day. They had to prove that they were on the air a certain amount of hours. And that was true for every station, period. It didn't matter what classification it was. And so he um, couldn't find local talent to help. I don't know if you all have been to Iowa. It's very provincial. It's very beautiful. I've spent a lot of time there. And uh, it just uh, seemed like such an unusual and idiosyncratic technology, and they hadn't figured out what it was for. 
at, uh, yet. They were soon going to. And so he would just pick up the violin because he had this vision thinking this is going to really help all the farmers in the state. They're all going to have the same education, and I just have to keep this going for a while. And he'd pick up the violin. <laughs> he had no idea who was listening. He had no idea uh, if they liked it. I don't even think he was a concert violinist. I think he was a hobbyist. <laughs> right? Mm. So he would play one, three hours per day just so they could keep the signal. One of the also early provisions of radio licensure was uh, live performance. So things had to be live. It couldn't just be a recording, which was actually still pretty difficult at the time he was doing that anyway, mm. to have the re live recording uh, playing. So, uh, yeah, so he met all these criteria for these bureaucratic expectations while he was envisioning a future for the medium that would soon become uh, the pillars for public media. The way you wrote part of this, really, I have to say, gave me kind of a laugh. Um, you wrote one night after a particularly lonely interlude on his violin. Uh, Carl Menzer was motivated to act on an idea that he must have been kicking around for a while with with the University of Oklahoma colleague. They, they wanted to find a way for for the various uh, non-commercial, mostly university stations scattered around the region to begin sharing content. Is that about right? Yeah, he was part of this very loose-knit group. It was called the National Association of Educational Broadcasters after 34. And at that time... Uh, or actually around that time with the violin, that was the title. But he um, was sometimes president of this very loose-knit group of um, just regional Midwestern broadcasters who saw this promise, the promise of radio to uh, serve the state. And he um, would correspond uh, with a guy, T.M. Baird at University of Oklahoma. And they said, well, this isn't going well at all. <laughs> <laughs> this is, our, our station doesn't have good programming. We don't have support from our universities. Uh, but clearly this is going to take over everything in the next 10, 15 years. So how do we keep it going? And they said, well, what if we were to produce like one great program each and then trade them with each other? But how would we even do that? And they begin to experiment um, based upon those lonely violin you know, interludes on the radio, he, would, he was thinking about how could we create a relay system uh, by which we could share content in the way that NBC shared its content with its affiliates. How would we even do that with no money, no advertising income, no interest, <laughs> right? And they begin to discuss this uh, around 1935, 1936, and uh, really within three or four years, they come up with a concept and the concept um, becomes the foundation. We'll talk about it more, but it becomes the foundation for what becomes NPR. So that would have been right after the Communications Act of, of 1934, which establishes the FCC as a regulatory uh, agency for broadcasting. It doesn't seem uh, like they did a whole lot for non-commercial radio. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, uh, there's that antagonism, as you mentioned, between um, educational and commercial stations. It's not an authentic antagonism, in my opinion. It was over the frequency scarcity. Uh, but the commercial broadcasters definitely wanted to uh, utilize as many open interfaces as they could. And they did. And they essentially just had a huge body of lawyers. They owned the technological infrastructure. Uh, they also, you know, with the wires, they could produce the receivers. They had the talent. 
it wasn't exactly vertical in integration, as they called it in film. It wasn't that they had a total monopoly, but they had all the resources. And around 1927, the government, the government begins to regulate, and they say, okay, how are we going to delegate you know, um, ownership of the airwaves with frequency scarcity? Who is going to take care of this infrastructure? And they begin to inscribe it almost immediately with commerce, with the language of commerce. And it's actually based out of the Committee for Interstate and Foreign Commerce uh, at the senatorial level. Uh, this is pre-FCC, and it was called uh, the Federal Radio Committee, and so FRC. And so they begin to just set regulation after regulation uh, between 27 and 34. This has been written about by my colleagues uh, Robert McChesney and Victor Picard in their works, and Hugh Slotten. Uh, by which the commercial broadcasters are given the public space and the public airwaves for commerce without any consideration of the purpose of a service you know, that airwaves can pr provide. And so in 1934, the Communications Act is the first major media regulation. It's the policy by which all future regulations would refer to. So anything after that is what they would call pursuant uh, to or it would be an amendment to uh, the Communications Act. And so what happens is they say, okay, um, NBC, RCA, CBS, they're doing a pretty good job stewarding the technical infrastructure without any government investment. So let's just give it to them. <laughs> that sort of, And they define it in terms of what they call public, um, public interest, convenience, and necessity. So these are the three terms, public interest, convenience, and necessity. And they say um, not... Airwaves have a public role or a public good, but that there's if someone's listening, that's convenient, and uh, what is public interest is what the public is interested in. And you probably think I'm being facetious <laughs> when I say that, but that's actually kind of what the language is of the bill. The, what is good for the public is what the public likes, and it doesn't have any sense of you know, the inequities between who has access to the airwaves already. And uh, what's important about the history uh, for us, especially with community radio listeners, and, you know, I'm a big supporter of community radio and donate to the station and everything, uh, and um, is that it, it essentially removes the licenses of all of the non-commercial stations. They cannot meet the criteria of the act. And so 70 stations, 70% of stations lose their licenses within uh, six months of the act. And what happens is this experiment in equal access to education through technology becomes immediately decimated in ways that almost no interest actually wanted. Of course, uh, they were ambivalent about it at the commercial media level. Uh, but the regu regulators are actually confused by the bill. The FCC uh, it has to allocate and reallocate the frequencies, but they're formed by the act. So it wasn't the, like the FCC came in and said, okay, we're going to remove all the educational licenses. They were a new body that had to then delegate based upon the senatorial rules that they were given. And they themselves were pretty unhappy about it. And they begin to um, open up this space that's not honestly a very generous space, uh, but how could they reallocate to educational stations becomes a cause of concern and interest. Uh, and it becomes, in its own way, almost like a social movement 
to uh, expand equal access to education and figure out ways to get around the policy. And all these groups start to become interested, uh, philanthropic groups, the government and federal groups, grassroots groups, like progressive groups, uh, critics, uh, and of course, school districts and universities. There's just this almost like explosion of experimentation uh, in this 18 years uh, between the next major regulation, which is for television, and uh, that's the occupation of the book, is what did they do, why did they do it that way, you know, and what succeeded, what innovated in that time. You wrote that it was guided by, and I am quoting here, a, a vision of justice met through educational research. Yeah. So um, compulsory education, so that you have to go to school, <laughs> right? That's actually a pretty recent phenomenon. People don't realize that, and I didn't even realize it until I started writing the book. In the 1850s, you get the first state laws, uh, like out in Massachusetts, but you don't have uh, the necessity for education. Kids got to go to school to ha you know, earn skills or whatever you know, people think school's for, uh, until the 19-teens. That's the last, they're all state-based laws at first. And so you have all the states developing these rules for education, but they're not all doing it in sequence. And there's something about that combination of uh, the idea that everyone should have equal footing you know, uh, of the progressive era of the 1880s, the 19-teens, 1920s. There's something about uh, this notion that some people have this opportunity and others don't. And it begins to take the veneer of something like a right. Education is not just a resource of an agency, but a right that everyone should have the same access. And around that time, you get the early forms of standardized testing, which I don't personally support at this point, but the idea that everyone should have the same curriculum and then how do you implement that, right? And so media becomes this extension of that discourse where it's not just that we're going to have this resource out of a university or a school district, but that everyone has a right to education and we have to find every strategy that we can to make sure that everyone's got a chance. And this is a good 20 years before Brown versus the Board of Education even. So there's this like kind of progressive auspice in the 1930s to technology, uh, and there's this promise to it. Uh, and, and in the book I call it an economy of promise because, you know, we think of economy as uh, financial, but there's all these different nodes or like uh, sectors that begin to work together and form a relationship that becomes a singular kind of articulation of a voice of access to education that has its own set of relations without advertising dollars. So that's the economy. It's a different kind of an economy than finances. So, yeah, uh, and so it begins to take, I wouldn't call it even remotely something uh, like a social justice movement, like civil rights, right? It, it's different, and it's uh, not as fully developed, and there are some contradictions within it, including especially racial and gendered access to leadership roles in that time. There's a paternalism there. And at the same time, you know, in the 1920s and 30s, when you have this notion that everyone should have exactly the same education, that was considered radical at that moment. KGNU FM 88.5 Boulder. KGNU 1390 Denver. These fellows are doing your three-part cowboy yodel. 
a Colorado cowboy song, Scotty Vaughn. I'll smell the western air From the back of a chestnut bear Better blooming everywhere Back in Colorado I'll my name is John Kellen. We are speaking with Josh Shepard here on KGNU. He is the author of Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. Well, since we are in, in Boulder, there is a reference in your book to the Rocky Mountain uh, Radio Counts. Yeah, so there's this amazing local history here in Colorado uh, that's pretty crucial to the foundations of public media. So one of the activist groups before the Communications Act uh, called the National... Committee for Education by Radio. People don't need to remember that. The NCER had done a lot of lobby work in the early 30s unsuccessfully to find protective frequencies for educators so they didn't have to compete with commercial broadcasters for allocations. And uh, they got wiped out by the act, and they regroup after the act. And so one of the members of the, of the um, committee also happened to be the president of the University of Wyoming, uh, his name was A.G. Crane. And he said, well, look, we still need equal access to education, uh, especially for the mining towns up in the Colorado, you know, Colorado, Colorado mountains. <laughs> Colorado. So they, um, he has this concept that's very similar to Carl Menzer and T.M. Uh, Baird, which is what if we were to print records and do some shortwave relay from mountain town to mountain town? So how do we get from Boulder to Ward, right? And then from Ward up the steamboat or something. And uh, they begin to institute the first viable infrastructure for a state-based curriculum that comes through technology. And in fact, that was the only education available to some towns between uh, roughly 1936 and the early 1940s. So uh, what was really remarkable about the Rocky Mountain Radio Council was that it not only standardized curriculum so that everyone in the state had the first, um, you know, uh, educational technology shared experience of education, but they were able to train teachers to use technology as part of their teaching. And they were the first ones to really do that. And in the process, they were responding to the problems of the Communications Act. And remember, the Communications Act defined um, allocations in terms of what they called public interest. So he takes the term public interest and he says, well, we're going to do public, but we're going to do it without advertising. This is a nonprofit model. Equal access to education is the goal. And he calls it public media. He calls it public radio. So he essentially defines the nomenclature uh, under a couple different titles. He calls it a public broadcasting service. He calls it uh, public radio. He calls it public service radio. And so the term for public broadcasting in the country actually comes from Colorado. It was actually invented as a spin on the public interest mandate as they're trying to develop an educational network through universities and from town to town. I love little details like that. One of the things that fascinated me uh, in your book involved an early study on the impact of radio on its listeners. You describe a man that you call... Uh, a forgotten founder of communications research. His name is Hadley Cantrell. Am I pronouncing that right? Yep. Uh, he was studying the effects of radio broadcasts on the public's acquisition of information. 
Yeah, this is one of my favorite parts of this history. It was completely an accident that I discovered it. So I had a background in philosophy before I was a historian. And I was interested in like, you know, ideas, just how the ideas work, how they become material practices in the case of equal access um, ambitions. And, And what happens is after the act, the FCC and the Office of Education at the federal level say, I mean, this is preposterous that we can't even use the airwaves for government purposes or education. And so they say, well, how can we prove to a regulating body like the Senate that actually this is important and should not be in competition with commercial media? And what we need uh, to do is provide evidence or data. And they say we need to develop something that shows that there um, is uh, educational broadcasting extension into learning that is successful. We need to prove it works. And so they start to commission studies at Ohio State, Wisconsin, and uh, at Princeton. And Hadley Cantrell was a professor at Princeton. Uh, He was uniquely interested in radio at the time. And he was a social psychologist, which largely does quantitative research on mass uh, experiences. So so, uh, Hadley Cantrell is given money uh, through the Rockefeller Foundation to uh, explore if and when educational technology is actually effective at educating. And he hires some people who are probably also long forgotten outside of the academy, a guy named Paul Lazarsfeld and Herta Herzog, who helps to found survey research and advertising research after this project, and a guy named Frank Stanton. And Frank Stanton is a young um, educational psychologist from Ohio State who's at CBS. And uh, CBS uh, uh, eventually promotes Frank Stanton to be president, and he's president uh, for many, many decades, becomes this big cultural figure. And they sit down and they say, well, how do we understand when it works and when it doesn't? And what they realize is that they have to define not just do people understand, but who understands and when and then how can we make adjustments to content so that they do understand it? So they, what they do is they develop early demographic categories of listeners. And so uh, they say, okay, uh, someone in Montana who has these following traits, uh, gender, age, but also certain preferences or likes, uh, responds to the show in this way. But uh, the other person understands it better. You know, so what's the difference? So they begin to, for the first time in really all types of research, develop breakdowns of categories uh, of embodiment. So uh, someone might have 15 to 18 variables that make them who they are to an institution, right? Because we're much more complicated than institutions can account for. But most research, when they call you on the phone and they say, what do you think about that presidential candidate, right? All these ways that it's still used. Uh, what do you think about the character in that movie in pre and post development? Uh, they begin to innovate that kind of research in the 1930s, but in accordance with the curriculum that people are hearing on radio. And this is coming from a mandate uh, from the government. As it developed, then, the famous uh, War of the Worlds radio broadcast wound up inadvertently playing uh, a part of part of their research, did it not? Yeah, so War of the Worlds, Orson Welles, the Mercury Theater. Right, uh, just to set the stage, because a lot of people may not be familiar with it, it was... It was a radio broadcast that, that simulated a, uh, we interrupt this program to bring you this attack by Martians or something like that. 
which a lot of people, for whatever reason, took seriously, or they, they thought it was real. So what, what happened? So CBS uh, broadcast on the Mercury Theater with a young Orson Welles, went on to do Citizen Kane, Magnificent Ambersons and stuff in film. And he's, uh, I don't even know, he's in his early 20s. He's like 20, like 21. And so they say, okay, what if we were to pretend it was similar to a news break within the performance itself? And this just had not been done in radio before, and people had begun to become like familiar with or ossified in their expectations for cues of genres. So when you listen to theater, it was a different listening experience than listening to the news broadcast, you know. And so they combined the genres. It was sort of that simple. They introduced one type of genre into another. And the audiences, because people do listen closely, but sometimes they don't listen closely, sometimes they're washing dishes, you know, or eating or something, they were surprised by it. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the... Apocryphally, a lot of people panicked. Uh, it turns out to be a pretty small number <laughs> that compared to the amount of listeners. But what happened was a notable number did actually get confused or panicked by it, and they had, CBS had Frank Stanton. They had their guy, their educational psychologist on this project that was being funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and the government. And they said, hey, can you check this out? Like, you have this new way of understanding d demography, of, you know, the demographics of who's listening. Uh, so which people? Which people panicked and why did they panic? And so they begin to do this test on War of the Worlds. And what they found was that their methodology was actually pretty effective uh, at looking at people in different regions of the country. Uh, so they really did a deep dive into New Jersey because uh, they, they were just, just at, in Princeton, right? So that was just nearby. And then they uh, be, were able to move into other parts of the country and the demographic categories. So the affiliations of people, not based upon geography, but forms of embodiment, responded in similar ways, and they're able to identify patterns. And they wrote a whole book about it, like in a very short time, in a couple months. And uh, this was the beginning of really just an explosion of types of research in all kinds of fields in commerce, thanks to the contradictions of the Communications Act. In part, they were already working on it, obviously, at the schools. But this moment of bringing everyone together had uh, essentially borne a new research methodology that took over the world in, in, in a lot of ways. And so where the world's becomes uh, not only this major cultural event, but it also becomes this major intellectual event uh, by which researchers are able to measure people's responses around it. And, and the big uh, payoff here too, and this is crucial to understanding just how media works as an institution, is that once you have the demographic categories assigned, you can begin to predict the behaviors of the people who are listening per category. And so what does that mean? That means it's great for propaganda. You can predict different types of people's responses. They used it immediately in propaganda. Uh, the War of the Worlds broadcast becomes a, a, a beginning of a kind of propaganda research uh, for the government and OWI during the war. It becomes research and development. So think of it this way, like commercial industries uh, are making 
content. They're producing content without knowing if anyone's going to want to see it or purchase it or listen to it yet. And so they're predicting audience behavior in advance and putting millions and millions of dollars into a movie like the Barbie movie, you know, that just came out. And but they before that, they have all of this research and development to predict if audiences will actually like it, you know, and so that predicative model of the demographic research becomes uh, uh, instituted uh, by the end of the 1930s uh, as part of this advocacy for reform to educational um, appeals for radio frequencies. The transitional period that you identify and are writing primarily about runs to 1951. Um, what was the state of, of non-commercial radio at that time, and was there a shift at that point? Yeah, that's a great question. So this National Association of Educational Broadcasters that Carl Menzer was a part of, uh, they are like a clearinghouse, right? They're not really a research group exactly. They kind of report to each other through ledgers what they've been doing, even as they they have some ideas going. So, you know, a few things happen. Uh, one is they begin to experiment with this model that Menzer uh, has in mind. So if they wanted to have the same program, they would have to broadcast from a radio to a radio, not through wires, right? Not through taping. And that was really difficult. And, and it became a problem in interstate commerce lines. So if they did that into Illinois, which they also tried, they would have the station IDs, which was true all the way back to the beginning that you had to like identify which station you're listening to. And they would have the wrong station IDs on the relays. So they couldn't do it that way. So the next thing they did was they said, well, what if we were to like record this onto a record, like literally a vinyl record, you know, and they started to do that. And that ended up being the winning recipe is they said, we're going to record this uh, we're going to put it onto a vinyl record. We're going to press the record. So now we need to find uh, either we need to build a manufacturing group or we need to find someone in our region who's willing to press the records for us. And they begin to just trade the records and they call those program transcriptions. So they begin to create a program transcription network through the National Association of Educational Broadcasters. Uh, and that begins to fill time for stations that were especially bereft of support. So yeah, so the NAEB is doing that, but otherwise they're largely dormant. And what happens is the government at really the top level with the Office of Education is licensing all this research. They There's these rules of the government, they're very boring, where they can't actually um, pick and choose amongst competitors. So that's why the philanthropic groups begin to step in, like Rockefeller. And Rockefeller begins to fund different projects that are identified as important by the government and different researchers. That becomes the origins of philanthropic support of public media. Uh, you also have the military uh, gets interested in it because media uh, education is a faster form with fewer people to learn basic machinations. Uh, and then you get these reform groups who are writing uh, what we now call political economic research about essentially the morals of technology. You get people who are talking about, okay, so we can't just have commercial radio take over everything. There can't just be free market competition for people who have a head start, and that is our identity as a democracy. So you begin to see the origins of what I would associate more with community radio and the virtues of community radio, that there needs to be better access to dissenting voices. So a lot of what happens is actually not in the NAEB. 
Uh, it's actually around the NAEB. And what's going to happen is by the late 40s, all these other groups are going to kind of move on to different things. And the NAEB is going to absorb all of their discoveries back into the clearinghouse and become the centralized group that will eventually build NPR and PBS. That brings me to uh, the Public Broadcasting Act of 1967, um, which forms the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and uh, leads to uh, NPR and PBS as we know them today. Yeah. So, I mean, I've talked about uh, three areas today. Uh, so you have like facilities maintenance. Could they can they just have a station and make it work? Right. The educators. Um, how, what do you do with it once you have it? You know, and then how do you do research around it to make sure it's working? So those are the three titles of the Public Broadcasting Act. Like the Public Broadcasting Act looks a certain way because of the idiosyncrasies of the American history. Uh, about non-commercial media. And if you go back a little bit uh, to the educators in the late 40s and 50s, they uh, start to you know, work together uh, after the war. So FM emerges, and it's not as much competition anymore uh, after you have FM channels introduced and television looming. So there's less pressures from the commercial broadcasters uh, to compete for the stations. And they're going to say, okay, we have this experiment that we've been doing in exchanging uh, broadcasts. And uh, what if we were to institutionalize this out of one or two places? And they choose the University of Illinois, and they're working with WNYC out of New York City. And they say, uh, what if we were to just trade broadcasts curated by a selective board, and then everyone was broadcasting the same thing like the commercial networks? And they called that the bicycle network. And the Bicycle Network mm. is usually identified as the beginning of non-commercial media. And so when you get to the Public Broadcasting Act of 1967, um, you know, it, it is like this pastiche of all of these movements and all of uh, these aspirations and principles, all of this trial and error experimentation. And the act is remarkable in how much it just resembles uh, what they would call the real politic, you know, the actual how it was working on the ground already. What's fascinating about the act, the Public Broadcasting Act, is that it, uh, after all that work from the educational sector, the act severs educational media from the educational sector. It becomes its own funded, you know, institutionally insular approach. And there's still some connections for some time. But, you know, over time, the model becomes the commercial networks. They're competing with commercial networks for listeners. And we see that now with podcasting and stuff, too. A lot There's this huge exchange between, like, Gimlet, right, and NPR. And there's, just, there's a lot of fluidity between the sectors at this point. But at, what, by doing so, they also became a, sort of um, serially limited in the kinds of funds that they could accrue. So they had a certain amount from the government, goes to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The corporation shields NPR and PBS from direct government instruction and delegates block grants largely around the three titles, so facilities and research. And so, you know, from there, they have uh, sort of the basics of an infrastructure, but maybe not a thriving infrastructure. And so the states had to step in for a long time and give more money to the local stations. They've almost com completely deaccessioned from state funding around the country. This is a huge crisis within public media. So th then public media has to go uh, to find the equivalent of sponsors, which they call underwriters. And the underwriters uh, have more and more say over public media than uh, they used to because of that. The seeking of funding 
creates a kind of self-regulation by public media by which it will do what it takes to survive, which means making concessions. One of the goals of community and public media is to reach the smallest possible audience. There's no audience too small. That's like the beautiful thing about non-commercial media. There's no profit motive to just reach everyone. Everyone deserves a voice. Everyone deserves access, right? And so what you have is, you know, uh, this moment where um, education could provide a renewable, nearly infinite and diverse audience, <laughs> you know, that they claim to be seeking in public media, but are no longer directly seeking because it is more of a commercial underwritten interface than it is a um, educational interface. Uh, if I was to be prescriptive, and the book is not prescriptive, I want to be clear about that. The book is not a prescriptive, it's a history, you know, based upon do archival documents. But if I was to be prescriptive, I would say, get back to work with ed educational institutions. I mean, it's there, they need each other, and it's exactly the audience public media claims to be seeking. At the end of the book, uh, The Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting, you, you mentioned the original mission statement uh, of National Public Radio. I pulled an excerpt from it. I wonder if you wouldn't mind uh, just reading that, that little bit there. Sure, I'd be uh, honored to. Uh, this was written by Bill Sim Simmering. He founded All Things Considered in Fresh Air, was the first program director of NPR. I've gotten to know him a little bit. Uh, he's been a great resource for learning about this history for the book. And he writes, The total service should be trustworthy, enhance intellectual development, expand knowledge, deepen oral aesthetic enjoyment, increase the pleasure of living in a pluralistic society, and result in a service to listeners which makes them more responsive, informed human beings, and intelligent, responsible citizens of their communities and the world. Very aspirational. Hi, this is Bobby Weir, and you're listening to Community Radio, 88.5 FM, KGNU, Boulder. We are speaking with Josh Shepard uh, here on KGNU. The, he is the author of Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. Josh Shepard is also uh, with the Radio Preservation Task Force. You're the chair of it. It was created in 2014 out of the Library of Congress National Recording Preservation Plan. Could you tell us a little bit about, uh, about that task force? Yeah, I've got two hats. Uh, before I was at Boulder, um, University of Colorado Boulder, I was at uh, Catholic University in Washington, D.C. as an assistant professor. And one thing about being in D.C. is that they kind of recruit you to work on projects in your specialty areas. And I got uh, recruited as a media historian by um, a dean at George Washington University named Christopher Sterling, who just passed away uh, less than two weeks ago, so I wanted to mention his name. And he uh, worked with FCC and NPR and had written over 20 books. And the government asked him to uh, evaluate the status of um, radio just as a technology, uh, but you know, and the content history of it for the Recording Preservation Board, which is uh, an extension of Library of Congress. And so he invited me to be on the project, and uh, he actually took ill uh, within the first year that I was on the project. But within that first year, we had attracted partnerships at over 100 universities. And so we had this gigantic project in motion, and I became the director of the project, and they asked me to design essentially a research and evaluation 
task force uh, for the government. And so we got to work, and what we found within the first two years after a large national survey was that uh, at least 75% of radio history record had already been lost. Um, it was in our two reasons. Uh, one was corporate consolidation of local radio. They had bought stations that had archives and then thrown out the archives because they were on obsolete media like reel-to-reels and magnetic tape. Mm. And the other is natural decay. There's a natural degradation to tape. The tape just dis disintegrates. And so then the question became, okay, we've evaluated it. So our project was essentially, our first mandate was done by probably 2018, but can we actually save it? Can we save these histories? And people became really interested when we began to realize uh, on the reels that we discovered that, oh, this is the civil rights community organizing history of Indianapolis, right? Oh, these are the lost interviews with the Tuskegee Airmen, right? In Tuskegee, in the city of Tuskegee and Tuskegee College, right? Oh, this is the history of LGBTQ organizing in Los Angeles, which is one of our projects this year is preserving that, uh, is preserving um, the LGBTQ radio history uh, for This Way Out, which is the longest running uh, community broadcasting. So we, it, it, and then on top of that, the material was not only culturally relevant in our opinion, it wasn't only something that we needed to preserve, um, but it actually had histories you couldn't find in, in the archive world, what we call paper trails. So there were no newspaper coverage or there were no personal letters that you find in archives. It was actually the only document. Sound was the only document of these local histories. And these local histories often included alterity groups, especially thanks to community media history. Community media, when they preserved themselves, uh, turned out to be these unfiltered voices, these ungatekept voices on behalf of people themselves representing communities and talking to their own communities. Are there any particular discoveries or, or, or entries into the, into the uh, archive that have really excited you personally? Or Yeah, it's kind of an unending stream of interesting stuff. So uh, it could be anything from like sports, like baseball, old baseball <laughs> recordings, you know, to political speech. Like we'll have something like here is a two-hour lecture at a university by Thurgood Marshall. And it was the only recorded uh, and uh, remaining um, you know, record of his opinion about certain um, cases that he was working on at the time or he was overseeing at the time. Or it could be, I just uh, did something with the National Gallery of Art. They had live performances for decades and decades that they taped. Uh, and none of it was radio, it was just sound. <laughs> but they came to, they're writing a grant to preserve that. So the history of live performance at the National Gallery of Art. But the really, really interesting stuff is always local radio stations, very local, like old, like you know, five to 10, 15 mile radiuses of signals, mm -hmm. often community. So like um, one thing that we were able to get a couple grants for, and by the way, the task force takes no money at all. We treat it as a research project. All the money goes to preservation, 100% of it. Sure. Okay, I just want to be clear about that. Sure. But like <laughs> University of Oklahoma had the history of local reservation radio. And so we have this First Nations community organizing broadcasting, and the nomenclature is theirs, uh, the Indians for Indian Hour. That was uh, what they called it themselves. So the, But we were able to preserve that. And as the last um, indigenous people's broadcasting from the 40s and 50s that we could find, all the rest have been lost. Uh, a lot of it comes out of universities, you know, uh, big named universities will have these collections of local radio and they'll just have them on the shelves and they're an obsolete media so they can only be listened to at certain places in the whole country 
And then from there, um, it takes a lot of money, uh, but you, you know, you can then what they do what they call process them in the archive world. You can create metadata for them so that we know it's on the recording and then digitize it uh, if they're not too decayed. So that's a lot of what we do is we find a recording. We decide if it's historically valuable. We tend to preference local histories, if we, uh, but every history is viable, of course. And then we, uh, we call that localism. We, pre we preference localism. And then we uh, help them obtain grants uh, and then preserve digitally the recordings before they decay so that they're available for research in the public uh, indefinitely. Josh Shepard is the author of Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. He's been speaking with us here on KGNU. My name is John Kellen. Thank you, Josh, for coming by today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Josh Shepard, an assistant professor of media studies at CU Boulder and the author of Shadow of the New Deal, The Victory of Public Broadcasting. He is also the director of the Sound Submissions Project at the Library of Congress. We'll have links to all of this on our website. This has been KGNU's From the Archives to the Air, written and produced by John Kellen and Alexis Kenyon. I'm Benita Lee. Thanks for listening.